iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Apple Store Soho. Uh, first and foremost, thank you so much for being here tonight. We know we've had a slightly less than usual day weather-wise, so we very much appreciate your presence. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Matt Damon, Paul Greengrass, and our guest moderator, Donna Friedkin. Thanks for coming out on this lovely, warm, and sunny day. That's nice. All right, you guys. Well, this is your third movie together, right? Yeah. Yeah? It is. So can you talk about the genesis of the project? Yeah, you do that one. Um, yeah. It, 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 it started really, um, actually, after Born Supremacy, in actual fact. Um, and I was talking... Yeah, we were talking, and I was talking to Universal about what I was going to do, and I, I, I actually thought at that time it was going to be something, one film, somewhere between what had happened on 9-11 and, and the invasion of Iraq, because those were the sort of twin events that were driving our world, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but as it turned out, it became two films, the first one obviously being United 93, then we started... Matt and I started making Ultimatum. So that's really when we started to hone down on what exactly this film would be. And it, it, it Brian Helgeland, who'd, who'd worked with me on, on Supremacy, and I were discussing about the whole sort of tangled intrigue surrounding the hunt for WMD, and that was felt to be a great place to set a thriller. Uh, and it also felt like the kind of the inciting moment, if you like, of what it all became. Um, and that got us pretty quickly to a, to a WMD hunter, a character a bit like Miller that Matt plays, a, a man you know, with a, with a mission and a, and a noble cause. And he's, he's essentially you know, a soldier who does his duty, he's given a piece of paper, told to go to a place, and there he'll find A, B, and C weapons of mass destruction. Of course, he, when he gets there, they're not there. And that just felt like a great premise for a thriller, and it seemed to go to the heart of the matter. And you could imagine then a character going on a, you know, on a quest for the truth, a, a guy who's going to say, well, how come they're not there? And that, that became our film. And along the way, we, we tried quite hard to sort of make that work. And it, along the way then, we both read the Rajiv... Um, Chandrasekharan's book, Imperial Life in the Emerald City. And that really unlocked the missing piece because it, it was all about, it was a brilliant piece of reporting about the green zone in Baghdad, that strange, surreal world in Saddam's palaces where the coalition made the headquarters and, and, and the infighting and the intrigue and the conspiracy that went on there. And then it was clear, you know, Miller was going to go in search of the answers and he was going to end up in the green zone and there in the sort of blasted ruins of Saddam's palace he was going to find his answers. So that's how it went. How did you guys maintain such a heightened sense of almost relentless realism and action and urgency throughout the whole film? Um, is that the other lecture going on? <laughs> that's, that's Ben Affleck over there. <laughs> what are you guys doing here? Go listen to him. Um, 
Uh, well, I think I think that's a kind of a specialty of Paul's, um, and he's done it to incredible effect. I think in uh, in Bloody Sunday and United '93, and uh, and one of the things he does that we did in this movie is he'll he'll take um, non-actors and blend them with actors. So um, I, if I was going to become this guy who was going to lead this mobile exploitation team into uh, you know, this hunt for WMD. <clears throat> Rather than surround me with you know twenty actors to to lead, he we we hired. Well, I think we actually ended up with about thirty vets, guys who had just come back from Iraq or Afghanistan, um, and uh, and 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 that those were the guys who filled out the cast. So um, Ben just made another good point over there. Um, but but for the actors in the piece, it really is a you know. Anytime you walk on a movie set, there's somebody called a technical advisor, and the technical advisor is the, the expert in whatever the movie happens to be about. So when we did The Departed, for instance, it was a, it was a retired major in the state police, and, you know, and, and everyone just henpecked the guy with questions. And, um, and in this case, we had a guy named Monty Gonzalez, who was our technical advisor. But we also had basically 30 other technical advisors who, uh, who we leaned on very heavily. Um, to help us kind of work through the situations that we that we were playing out and and uh, help us get the details right and make it feel authentic. And what made you want to play Roy Miller? Uh, it was a job. Um, uh, well, and you know, to to work with uh, to work with Paul. I mean, I, I um, there are a few directors that I've been really lucky to work with over and over again, and and. Uh, <clears throat> we've done. We've been all over the world together working, and it's just a really good. Uh, you know, I just I I really like like working for him, and I thought this was a really interesting uh, idea for 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 an action thriller, and uh, it just seemed like a, like uh, a great way to kind of engage with the issues of the day and make a really fun movie. Do you guys have a shorthand at this point when you work together? You just witnessed it. Oh, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah. Ben, what do you think? Oh, no, he's... <laughs> no, we do, we do, we do. Uh, and we have a lot of fun, too. But uh, this was hard, hard work. And, um, I mean, all movies are hard, but, yeah, the proposition of this film was hard to try and make a film, with, you know, with broad appeal. Mm -hmm. but, um, because it definitely felt to me, when we were making Born Ultimatum, that one of the things we were trying to do was to park that thing as close as we possibly could so it felt like it was ripped out of the headlines. But in the end, it's, it's born world, you know, it's not a real world. And it, it just felt to me that, I mean, it's an interesting thing that, that why was it those films were so popular, you know? I, I, I remember thinking at the time, of course, you know, they're great fun and there's tremendous lots of adrenaline action and all of that. But I'm sure that Part of it is because they were a perfectly distilled cocktail of, of paranoia wrapped up inside a, a genre conspiracy thriller. And, you know, that broad audience comes and they, you know, they love the action and the smart storytelling and all of that. And, but I think it's about the contemporary nature of it and the, the fact that it distilled that paranoia in that way that, that felt familiar... And so <clears throat> you're looking at that audience and going, well, that, that paranoia comes from somewhere. Of course, it comes from what's going on out in the real world, which is, you know, just a small baby step through the curtain. And that's really 
you know, as, as you're sort of thinking about making Green Zone, I'm very conscious of wanting to make a, a broad film. You know, because the audience that went to see the Bourne films, that's the audience on the one hand that's being asked to fight this war, and on the other hand it's the audience where probably the most entrenched opposition to this thing. It's a completely split, but, but they're going to those sorts of movies and enjoying them. So if you're going to make a film set in that part of the world about those events, you want to reach both spans of that, and therefore you're going to be working within genre, but inviting that audience to take that step through the curtain back to the real world where all that paranoia and mistrust and all that stuff begins, which for me, it begins in the run-up to that conflict and everything that, that's happened once those weapons weren't found. When we, all of us in one way and another, whatever we think of that war, all of us, I'm sure, I certainly did, went, well, hang on a second, where, where were they? How come they were, thought they were there? And who told us they were there? And what, you know, and then the more you learn about the circumstances of all that, the more mysterious and secretive and conspiratorial it becomes. And so, can you, you know, the creative proposition, this is, can you craft a story that's compelling and got a lot of action and adrenaline has that same type of storytelling that we like, but which gets to the heart of that, you know. That's got to be a great story and it's got to compel you, which I think we do. But ultimately, it's going to the heart of the matter for me. And was it always your intent uh, from the very beginning? The movie isn't didactic. It's just uh, the point of the movie is that the truth matters, that it doesn't take sides. Was that, that was always the idea going in? Uh, well, I'm... Certainly, I mean, as Paul said, we were trying to reach a, a, a broad audience, and uh, it's not about what he or I think about this, and you know, um, but it is about about starting at that kind of central question of where, what what happened, where you know, <clears throat> when we all kind of woke up and found ourselves <clears throat> wherever we stood before the thing, where we all suddenly found ourselves, okay, the country's there, we're we're in, we're you know, <clears throat> we're in we're in we're in the war. And nothing has come to pass the way we were told it would, and uh, you know the laundry list of, <clears throat> of 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 hopes and dreams that the neoconservatives had that, that would come to pass, <clears throat> that didn't. Um, I think everybody did stop, as Paul said, and kind of say, "Well, wait, hang on. Wait, why did we come here? What was the? Oh, it was the weapons, but there, but there weren't, there weren't any. Happened. So, what the hell happened?" And that, and that, that I think that's that journey through that's been. The rest of that decade has been one way or another. I'm not saying we've all sat and thought about that, but somewhere trying to find our equilibrium after that, whether you're British or American, I think that's certainly true. So you try and find a story that, you know, in, in, in simple terms and in compelling terms, is just going to take a central character, Miller, he's going to take you on that journey. He's going to ask the question obviously much more explicitly than I asked myself, but essentially that question, how come? And, and then, of course, you're off and running because you've got a great premise for a conspiracy because you've got a guy searching for the truth and obviously he's going to take more and more risks to get the answer and you can spin a, a piece of fiction, you know, that, that he's going to penetrate. And, you know, that, that all works. Well, Matt, why do you think Miller was so driven to find the truth? Because, I mean, in the film you see other guys who are just like, okay, you know what, like, not worth it. Um... Well, this is kind of the classic kind of 
kind of thriller architecture, really, of just the, the you know, the, the, the protagonist on, with the noble quest, really. Um, um, he definitely takes it to, yeah, extremes that, but, but I mean, you know, Monty, for instance, the guy who <clears throat> was our technical advisor, who, uh, in the movie, I, I lead this mobile exploitation team looking for, uh, you know, hitting all these weapon sites, and, and, and Monty actually led, met Team Alpha, he was, and, and he told me, you know, when he went, that he and the other team leaders had a, you know, a thing, they were basically racing to see who was going to get on CNN first, holding up the, the smoking gun, you know, and uh, he was sure that they were there, yeah. absolutely sure that they were there, and um, and though that you know this movie doesn't follow his life or his story, <clears throat> he had the same experience where he went there and he got there, and uh, unlike in our and I and I think in our film, you know, it's very exciting opening and I, and you know at the end I say this is the fourth time this has happened or something. Monty actually told me that the very first sight that he hit. Um, you know, and it's, I mean, it's not easy stuff that yeah, they're yeah. doing to get in. Um, it was listed as a dual-use facility in the in, in Intel packet that he had, meaning, so it was a, you know, a porcelain factory, but also they were slash making... Bomb slash bomb Slash, yeah, right, yeah. exactly. Um, and he, he just looked at it and went, there's absolutely no way. He said, I knew the whole thing was bullshit the second, the second I got into the very first site, because... I looked at it and said, how, how could any reasonable person come in and say that they were making anything but porcelain here? Um, and so he did actually have a, mo a moment where he mm -hmm. said to his men, <clears throat> you know, our mission is to find out what the, what's, go what's going yeah. on. You know, <clears throat> our mission is to find out why we can't accomplish our mission, which is to find WMD. What was the most challenging thing for you guys about the shoot? Recreating Baghdad in Spain and Morocco, for starters? That was very hard, yeah. Um, I think that worked out very well. I mean, I think one of the things I'm most proud of about this film is that it, you know, it, you're really there. It's, it's not just the odd desert street. You're right through the centre of Baghdad and the green zone and the swords and the palaces. And, you know, it's a truly surreal kind of, you know, ride that you're, you're pitched through in this movie. Um, but I suppose the hardest thing really was to, I mean, that final action sequence was pretty hard. You know, it's a big sustained piece with a lot of... The nighttime one? Yeah, a mm -hmm. lot of separate elements and, you know, bring it together so it's focused and you understand what's going on and you understand what each character's doing and making that sort of fugue together, that was a, a, bit, of a bit of a proposition. Did you really, you know, make Matt work hard for this? Like, really torture him? I hope you did. <clears throat> well... He had to do a lot of running. It was kind of... I always have to do a lot of running in your movies. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of Jesse Owen mixed with Hussein Bolt mixed with, you know, Ben Johnson mixed with Carl Lewis. You know, it's that kind of a thing. And I got to ask you, one director I interviewed last year said that Matt has a lot of repeat customers and directors. Why do you think that is? Since you're one of them. Um, well... Um, I think we share the same instincts, you know, mm -hmm. and the same, that, I think that's at the heart of it, you know. The, the point is when you make films, if you're a director, you, the relationship you have, you know, I'm gonna embarrass you, but the relationship you have with, the, with your mm -hmm. central actor is the principal relationship of the film creatively, because together you're basically gonna describe the architecture. And any film is, an uncertain journey through darkness towards a, 
you know, an only dimly perceived end result. And, you know, you're shining a torch in the dark. And I always feel with Matt, it's two torches, not one. You know, and that's a fantastic feeling. That's a good answer. I'm your second torch. <laughs> Wait, who's the first one? So Matt, what was the most challenging part for you of making this, of playing this guy? Um, <clears throat> actually, I, the, the most challenging part was probably at the outset, um, knowing that I was going to have 30 guys who just got back from Iraq and Afghanistan and that I was going to have to be barking orders at them and, you know, without, I mean, and, and be able to, 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 to do it without coming out of character and apologizing for it. Um, and they really helped me with that, you know, because I, and I, I said, to, I told Paul that I had some anxiety about that um, at the beginning. Um, uh, you know, because it's, it's, you'll feel, you know, I've just, felt like, you know, a dippy actor, you know, telling these guys, um, you know, saying anything to them. But they were just really great, and they really bought into the whole idea of the movie, and they said, you know, they wanted the movie to be good, and for the movie to be good, I had to be believable as a chief warrant officer, and they really helped me with that stuff. They, you know, helping me with dialogue, helping me with, I mean, every possible procedural thing militarily, they just were, really wanted me to get it right, and so that, Ended up, it ended up making the role very, very easy and a lot of, in the sense that I didn't feel like I was acting. I never felt like I had to go far to get there because I was so supported by the rest of the cast and, and, and by Paul. So. Yeah, that must have been amazing working with the, with the vets. That's, yeah, uh, no, I mean, and for scenes like, you know, there's a scene where we go and we, <clears throat> we, hit, we hit a house and, you know, Monty would just take my place mm -hmm. and they would do it just to show us what it looked like and and then they'd recreate it kind of slowly for us and, wa and walk it through and and then I'd just drop into the group and and uh, you know all that stuff just really you know it's the kind of thing that you know even with the most well-intentioned in actors you know it would just take a group of us a really long time to learn you know what these guys just was second nature to them because they'd really done it you know quite a bit of it uh, you know we we I have to tell these guys you know that we're gonna go do this thing we weren't expecting to do and um, and uh, and Paul said, "Yeah, Adam, why don't you when 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 Matt says this, why don't you say how do we know he's not leading us into an ambush? Because um, it's a legitimate question." And and when Paul made that suggestion, I saw a, another guy, uh, a, a Marine who was there who, at that time, done a, a really tough tour in Fallujah, and then subsequently went back again. Um, literally had such a visceral reaction to that suggestion that he turned around and. And, and left the little circle for a second. And, and I saw it and I, 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 I jogged over to him and I said, Mike, what, what's up, man? Um, and he's from the Bronx and he said, you know, are you kidding me? Are you, he said, that, that type of insubordination out here now? He, you know, and I went, what, what, tell me? He goes, you, he goes, if I had a problem with your leadership, you know, you would have heard about it by now. I would have, we would have sorted it out. But out here, when we're, when we're working, he said, get your effing game face on. And I said, really? And he said, get your effing game face on. And I said, okay, thank you. We went back to shoot the scene, and Adam, very gamely, <laughs> because it had been suggested by the director, said, hey, chief, how do we know this guy's not leading us into an ambush? And I said, we don't. 
and then screwed up all my courage uh, because I was talking to a real soldier and I'm an actor, uh, uh, put on my butchest face and said, get your effing game face on. And, uh, and it's a really great moment in the movie. And, 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 it was, and it's great because Adam didn't know I was going to say that. And his reaction was, was really honest. We, the camera was on. I did it when the camera was on him first because we wanted to get that reaction. And, uh, and he just went, his face kind of changed, and he suddenly looked young, you know. He suddenly looked like a 23-year-old and looked at me, and he said, sorry, chief. <laughs> and, and, so, and so that was like a big thing for me, kind of getting across that hurdle of being able to believably talk to these guys and that's again how they were helpful they bought into the because Adam could could have told me to go F myself and I would have apologized to him immediately <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so but again it was it was because the guys really wanted it to feel real Paul was that part of your I mean you're, you're as Matt said earlier you're known for always having this this really detailed sense of realism in all your movies? I don't know if detail is even the right word to use, but was this, was this part of it? Uh, listen, when you make films, you're the absolute custodian of all sorts of things that you have absolutely nothing to do with and that you then take credit for, so that would be just one of them. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's part of the interesting thing that happens when you, when you try to create group dynamics mm -hmm. and you put people together and you empower them and... You know, because the truth is, acting, what, what we understand as you know, professional acting in movies or on the stage or whatever, is only a particularly rarefied form of something that human beings do, we all do in our everyday. Every one of us who goes to work acts. We act the part of working in a bank or working, you know, whatever it is that you do. And soldiers are no different. And so when you put actors in professional situations with professional people, whether they're soldiers or bankers or whatever it is, you're getting two types of performance and the two bounce off each other and there are lots and lots of happy coincidences because there's a real human mm -hmm. dynamic there that, that's occurring and you know what you try and do is harness that and, and use it. And Matt, I know that you finished the movie after you wrapped The Informant. How, uh, how, how was it w getting back into... Soldier shape. I thought there were a couple cuts where I look a little moon-faced. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, we shot it and then, and then went and shot the informant. And then, uh, but no, I had a few months uh, okay. to, yeah. But yeah, it was no fun for a couple months, definitely. Yeah, Soderbergh made it sound like you literally left the informant sent right, you know, to, to finish no, this. No, I had a little, okay. a little more time than that. Um, but I, what was, uh, I had to time the, I started eating kind of at the end of the green zone. And I had to time that because it was a very short turnaround into the oh. informant. So. Well, but putting go. weight on is easy. Yeah, that's, that's the best part. It's, it's the other <laughs> side. It's not so good. Well, shall we ask a few? Do you guys have some questions? Just if you had any advice for somebody in my position, knowing what that was like going through that and being where you are now. Uh, the question was, would I have advice? Uh, he's an actor, and would I have advice uh, now, today, um, for you? And... Uh, <clears throat> I mean, my theory starting out was always just work, work as much as I possibly could, um, you know, and then, 
I mean, it, it sucks starting out. It's really hard, and it's really hard to get a job. And most of your time is spent trying to get a job, which isn't even the job that you want to learn how to do better. You know what I mean? So it, it, it's really tough. And um, I always used to say to people, don't do it, because I felt like if my saying that dissuaded them from doing it, they really shouldn't be doing it in the first place. But if you love it and it's what, how you want to spend your life, then, you know, I think now, you know, unlike when I was, you know, I, I got in the union in 1986 and um, it was a different world. I think there's a lot more, you know, available. I think there's screenplays you can, you know, you can, that are available. You can get stuff online. You can, so I'd say avail yourself of all of that. And uh, uh, <clears throat> if you, I don't know if you want to do theater or, or film or, or, but uh, if you want to do film, I would suggest reading screenplays. Uh, Screen, and just to start understanding how they're constructed, all of that, uh, kind of that whole, so that, so that if, if and when your opportunities come, you know, they don't come as a, uh, things don't come as a surprise to you. Um, what's that? That you're ready. That you're ready, yeah. As ready, as ready as you can be. I mean, I would definitely say study, because it's always good, you know, if you can get, you know, in classes, they have great classes in New York, you know, if you can find a teacher you really like, just so that you can be doing it because it's a trade. It's like carpentry. It really is. And anybody who says and it isn't is full of shit because, I'm sorry, I'm not so sorry. <laughs> but, but it, it is. And, and, and you get better at it when you do it and, and when you get near people who do it well and watch them and talk to them about it and learn from them uh, or w watch directors and watch how they're getting performances out of actors. <clears throat> that, that's really how you, how you, how you improve. And, and, and I mean, the goal, at least my goal, was always to have a, a long career. And, uh, you know, so don't worry about having to, you know, kind of suck it up on this side. That's okay, as long as you're, as long as you're being productive now towards that goal of, of, of learning and, 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 and getting better at it so that, so that when, when things do jumpstart for you, I mean, like, look at Morgan Freeman, you know, things really started happening for him, I think, in his late 40s, you know, or, you know maybe even his 50s, I mean, and, and he's had a remarkable career. So... You know, but he was ready. You know, he was clearly ready when the, when when when, it, when his shot came. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Actually, we have microphones. We can come to you. Just raise your hand if you have a question. Thank you. One over, one here. over here. Thanks. Uh, just a quick question for you. Um, from the thirty soldiers that you worked with, uh, as well as the uh, the film team itself, um, what is your? I don't know if it's opinion or or just assessment of things so over the years since you seems like you studied. Iraq and the whole issue. Do you think it was malevolent intent versus honest mistake of intelligent agencies in the U.S. and Britain? And what do you think overall with quote-unquote green shoots of democracy? Uh, do, what do I think? Um, who knows? You know what I mean? I think it's something got badly fucked up there, that's for sure. Um, you know, it in a way, I mean, I, I think the record shows that they, both governments got trapped in a, in a very difficult place. They, they decided that this was the, the pretext that they needed to pursue the policy that they decided on and then found far too late that they didn't have the evidence that they thought they had. And then they were running to catch up. And, of course, that creates a permissive environment where you're going to fall prey to the kinds of scams and forgeries and fabrications that we now know as a matter of record they did. <clears throat> now, 
in a sense, where in that deep and secret pot of nastiness the malevolent intent was, how much it was, who it belonged to, whether it was up or down the line, doesn't really matter to me. What matters to me is that out of that there was this toxic legacy of mistrust. I think somewhere, I can only speak for my country, you know, Britain, somewhere the contract, particularly amongst young people between the governed and the governing, was broken or damaged, would be better to say, damaged, strained, beyond the normal points that it should be. And it's going to take a very long time to get that into balance, I think. And, you know, in the end, one of the most interesting things about working in popular culture, which is essentially what movies are, is that you're trying to find stories that you can tell that, that play into what you think people are feeling. And your best guide to that, at least mine is, when I make a film, is what I'm feeling. And, and trying to identify that and, and find a story that will excite you know, because that's all it is, it's telling a story. And the thing for me, and I, I'm sure Matt would agree with this, the last thing I want to be doing is sitting at a bar with some bloke telling me what he th thinks about and giving me a lecture about the world. That's not what I want. But if somebody sits next to me and tells me a really interesting story, then I'm going to be interested, and that's what I try and do. So it's not about... Imposing a view. Yeah, imposing a view. It's about telling a story that challenges and engages so people go with it and go that's rewarding that's you know and if you can of course do that with all the kinds of things that he and I have done in the previous two films yeah with a lot of action and a lot of clarity and a lot of drive and high octane but but still feeling contemporary and fresh then then you're doing what movies are meant to be doing or at least in my view big movies can do. You know, I think that, <clears throat> you know, across any given year, you're going to get a whole broad range of films. And in the mainstream of the movie business, you're going to get, obviously, your fair share of the escapist movies and the superhero movies and all the rest of it. Um, and I love those movies too. But I think it's very important in that mainstream, and I think it's one of the things we tried to do with the Bourne movies, was try and bring them as close as you possibly can to the turbulent, exciting, imposing world that's going on out there outside on our doorstep. And uh, when that happens, when you feel that bleeding through into the mainstream, as I think you did in with The Last Night, for instance, you know, Dark Night, sorry, um, you know, or in the Bourne films, it suddenly makes that whole mainstream area feel tremendously exciting because it's it's the heart of popular culture invaded by what's going out on out there in an interesting anarchic way and you know if we've done some even a tiny bit of that that's a great thing that's what we've certainly tried to do question question over here on the far side hi uh paul matt i'm a big fan of your work um but uh, i was just wondering what the uh the process was like to get uh the studio's approval for the film because I know it's not the most uh, popular subject, so. <laughs> should I do that one? Yeah, you should probably do that one. <laughs> Do you know, honestly, honestly and true, really, uh, I've been asked that quite a bit today, actually. The amazing thing is it's 
about the easiest film I've ever, ever got going, ever in my entire life, really and truly. Um, I, you know, that probably has something to do with the fact that we'd had some success with the Bourne films, but, you know, that... I think one of the things about... And I, I can only speak for Universal, because I've only ever worked there, out, out here in, you know, in, in America, but this is my fourth film with them. And they supported it, me in each step that I made, you know, when I did Supremacy, and then when I said I wanted to do United 93, which was a very difficult... You know, obviously, very sensitive and difficult film to to try and attempt. They were nothing but 100% supportive. When we wanted to take Bourne and, you know, push it as far as we could, in you know, into the areas that we wanted to push it, they were, they were very good with that, and they've been very good with this. Of course, along the way, I'm sure there were great anxieties. Certainly, I was pretty anxious. You know, any, any film sets up tremendous challenges, and if you're going to try and do a film that's the purpose of which is to try and get some broad appeal set in this part of the world about this subject matter. That's a big ask, but what gets you through it is the teamwork and the fact that you've been through previous experiences together and got to a good end. So actually in truth, although it was a very arduous film to make, that side of things, that was easy on this occasion. If it doesn't go well, maybe not so next time. <laughs> we have one over here on the far right. Um, a question I had was uh, one of the amazing things about the films that you guys have worked to get on together is the set pieces and the amount of in complicated and, and very intricate blocking and lots of extras, lots of stunts. And I was wondering, um, I guess, what's the process of rehearsal and blocking these movies and doing it in such a way that it feels realistic and it feels like the camera is just an observer and not planned out? Well, I think in large part because, you know, Paul started as a journalist and started, you know, in, in documentary work. And so his whole, the whole way he captures action is in letting it unfold and in shooting it as if you're, you know, you're just a cameraman there and capturing what's, what's really happening. And as a result, the camera's never anticipating what anybody's going to do. Um, so and there's a certain kind of, I think, subconscious danger I think that creeps in you know uh, because you you don't know what's going to happen next and you're aware that the camera doesn't know what's going to happen next so anything could could happen and I remember on the Born Supremacy Paul saying um, talking about being in a you know in a plaza in I think Manila and and shots rang out and you know he said the, the we, we were having the conversation in the context of um, I think one of the first days we worked together, there was a steady cam shot, and uh, I was walking through a tunnel, and I was, it was on the Born Supremacy, and I was supposed to have just been shot. And, um, and at a certain point, uh, Paul said, okay, and then reach out, and you know, it, 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 we were moving together, Clemens, the steady cam operator, and I, and Paul said, at a certain point, I want you to reach up, check, you know, that it's gone through, the bullet's gone through, and, and then look at your fingers for the blood. And uh, I immediately said to the, to the operator, Clemens, how, how high do you need me to hold my hands, um, you know, so you can see it? Where's your bottom frame? And Paul said, no, 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 and he came running over. He said, no, no. He said, Clemens, go down for his hand. If you don't get it, it, it doesn't matter. We'll know what it is. We'll, you know, and, and that's kind of the way he approaches uh, uh, kind of capturing this stuff. So, um, so uh, 
uh, I had started out to tie it into something now. <laughs> Where had I started? I started... Uh, it's like any, any filmmaking process is a, is a relationship between two absolutely contrary forces. One force is the, the force for order, structure, rigidity, screenplay, knowing exactly what you're doing. And the other force is the moment of performance, the moment of inhibition, the moment of shedding it all and being free, you know, anarchy, the moment. All of those things which are pulling you in one direction are at war with the other forces that are trying to impose order on it. And any film, all directors, and I think all actors actually, exist somewhere on that spectrum. You know, are most comfortable maybe, you know, some directors, some actors are more comfortable on one end of the spectrum, some are more comfortable on the other, and I'm more comfortable right over here. But, but, but the truth is, those two have got to speak to each other, and the product of that conversation and the extent to which you can keep those two forces in harmony, even though they're working against each other, is your film. And so when you talk about action, there is a, there, you can shoot an action where, let's say, you know, the actor runs from left to right, picks up, you know, picks up a golf ball and, you know, it's Tiger Woods and he's running straight out the door. That's, and, and if, you're, if your camera's here and you're gonna, and everybody knows, you can come here, pick up the close up, Tiger Woods is away and he's out the door. Okay, that's one scene. Or you can put the camera on the other side and you're behind him and he runs in, gets the golf ball and he runs out that way. Well, the camera there doesn't know what he's gonna do, but this camera definitely does. And that's the difference. So at each time when you're shooting a scene, you're trying to work out where Tiger Woods is going to go. Exactly. There you go. I don't know quite how I got there, but that's yeah. how. Doug Lyman, actually, the director of the first Bourne film, directed a commercial with Tiger Woods. He did the famous Tiger Woods commercial where he's, where he's hitting the, uh, the ball up and down. <clears throat> Apropos of nothing. Sorry. Thanks for that. Question right over here in the uh, center. Hello. Um, I'm curious... Uh, as to both of you, who you would like to work with, who you haven't had the opportunity to work with yet, and why that person? I think, Matt, you've worked with just about everyone at this point, right? Is there uh, anyone well, left? I'm, I'm actually um, uh, on my way to work with the uh, Coen brothers, and I'm really excited about that. And uh, that's why I'm growing this mustache. It's either that or I'm going into porn. but <laughs> 80s porn, to be exact. I'm, uh, but no, so that's, uh, that's something I'm really looking forward to. And as a matter of fact, uh, Jeff Bridges is in the film as well, and Josh Brolin. So those are two actors that I've been dying to work with, too. So it's a, it's a good one. We have time for two more questions. Actually, Paul, what are you doing next? Don't know yet. Don't know yet? All right. Film about money. Uh, speaking of another tiger, I'm, I'm good friends with Jason Boland. Oh, one of right. colleagues. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the real tiger. Yeah. The original tiger. Would. But, but um, this question's for Paul. Uh, how did your experience as an investigative journalist uh, help in the research process for the film? Um, it, it's not so much that it helps you directly, you know, but you are the product of your background, aren't you? And if, you've, you, know, if you start comfortable in a world of facts, it, it sort of grounds you that way, you know? Um, you know, I've always been excited by what's going on out there. You know, I've always think of the 
the world as the exciting place. That's where the, the stories are, but you've got to go out and find the stories that, you know, have great noble characters and, you know, hopefully offer some kind of redemption and, you know, along the way illuminate the world that you're living in. That's what you're looking for. Um, and, uh, you know, somewhere along... I mean, I started off working on a programme long since gone now on British television called World in Action, which was a phrase that came from a man called John Grierson, who was the probably the sort of grandfather of the British documentary movement, who said that the filmmaker's purpose should be to depict the world, the world in action. And that's where I started, that's where I learnt to make films, and, try, you know, went, was the education of me as a person and as a filmmaker, but although that's long since gone, I've never forgotten that central lesson. That's, that's for me, I can't, you know, it only works for me, that's what filmmaking is about, it's about depicting the world in action, what are the things that are driving our world? And you try and find ways to make them, whether they're, you know, really fun, exuberant, kind of popcorn Jason Bourne movies, but they're still really about what's going on out there, or, you know, 93, or Green Zone, which is sort of somewhere in between. A final question here in the front row. What kind of research goes into making a film like this? Do you hire maybe a team of consultants? Yeah, in fact, Michael Bronner, who worked with us, is somewhere out here. He was um, one of the people who did um, a huge amount of the research and found all the, the Met guys and found all the stuff. Um, you know, you, you try and set up a structure of... You, know, you you have to be methodical about making films. You know, you try and set them up so that so that the people making the films are supported and, you know, distilling kind of factual material is a way of making any creative process feel grounded. It's, you know, the choices that an actor makes then are not random out of the million choices that you could make. Somewhere they'll help, they give you a checklist of, yeah, that feels right, you know. Thank you guys so much for coming out in this weather and uh, thank you guys. All right, thanks everybody. Guys, thank you very much for coming out this evening. One last reminder, you'll be able to download this and many more at the iTunes store with our Meet the Filmmaker podcast series. And of course, apple.com forward slash Soho for all our upcoming events. Thank you very much again. Get home safe.